Let me ask you this. You're listening to the NK News podcast, so you know more about North Korea than most. But how about the South? To really understand what's happening on the peninsula, you need to know about South Korea. And now you can, through our new Korea Pro news and analysis service. This is not your average news service. It's a thoroughly researched analysis of South Korea's politics, society, and economy from an international perspective. But you know what the cherry on top is? The absolute lack of commercial influences. No ads, no sponsored articles. It's just pure, objective analysis by a team of qualified specialists. And the best part? As a listener of this podcast, you get a 25% discount. All you have to do is use the coupon code PODCAST during your sign-up. So head over to careerpro.org slash podcast and start your journey with CareerPro. That's careerpro.org slash podcast. Hello, listeners, and welcome to the NK News Podcast. I'm your host, Jacko Zwetslut, and we're recording this pre-interview interview on Tuesday, the 21st of November. Do you know what this week is, Alana? I don't. 60 years ago on uh, the 23rd, something very important happened that changed world culture. Oh, no, you're putting me on the spot now. I know, I know. So, Well, our American friends might say, well, that was the assassination of John F. Kennedy. Of course, that happened on the 22nd in America, but on the 23rd you know, in, in other parts of the world. Uh, but it was actually, that's not what I'm thinking of. I'm thinking of the first broadcast of Doctor Who happened <laughs> on the 23rd of November. I've never seen an episode, Jacko. I've never seen one episode. Get out right now. <laughs> can, can, we, can we switch for somebody else? <laughs> okay. All right. Well, then uh, I've got only one question for you to start this off with, and that is, will there be a North Korean satellite this week? And, and why are people talking about it? I was all prepared to come in here. I had two really interesting stories about sports in North Korea. And then we what, have sports? this. Oh, you've got the wrong guy. I know. And then <laughs> we had this announcement this morning from the Japanese Coast Guard that North Korea has alerted them. There's going to be a satellite launch between November 22nd, which is tomorrow. Yes. Uh, and December which would be the 1st. 60th anniversary of the assassination of John F. Kennedy, America time. Okay, maybe they're thinking. Maybe. They're marking the occasion. Uh. But interestingly enough, the last two satellite launches that we've seen when they've given these windows of warning. Wait, um, so give me that. So it's from tomorrow until when? December 1st. Oh, heck, that's a long, that's yes. a 10-day window. Yeah. Now, the last time, though, the last two times, so yeah. this is the third attempt this year. We had right. a launch, uh, an attempted launch uh, on, in May and in August, and both times when they gave these uh, notice windows, the next day yeah. was the launch. So ah. it's looking likely that if we're going by precedent and if the weather is right. suitable tomorrow morning, we tomorrow could see a satellite day. launch. Okay. Yes. And, of course, we don't know whether that will be successful or not, but the big, well, the secondary question, one is, will it happen? And if so, when? And the next question is, have the Russians helped? You know, have they given something that will make this third attempt more successful than the second or first attempts in which you know, they, lost, they lost the satellite? Whatever they were trying to put up there, they lost it. Yeah, so yes, as we know, Kim Jong-un met with uh, Vladimir Putin back in September at this Russian spaceport and they did talk about cooperation. There hasn't been a huge amount of time that's lapsed since then. So, you know, it's hard to say has right. Russia helped. Having said that, in state media, North Korea did say 
you know, vowed to do this third launch by October and October has come and gone. Has come and gone. So yeah. uh, the story that we had this morning, Colin actually spoke to Ankit Panda, who's mm. one of the experts on this uh, topic. And he said, perhaps the fact that there wasn't a launch in October could speak to maybe some Russian help, maybe a little bit coordination. And um, but he said that there's no there's no obvious signs that Russia has helped with this upcoming right. launch. Right. The the obvious sign, you know, par excellence would be if Russia put a rocket up for them carrying yes. a North Korean satellite. Yeah, there was talk that that could be a way that they would do that. But right. this looks like it will be a, a North Korean rocket. Right, because North Korea has released this warning itself, yes. right? Yes, yeah. Okay. So, and, the, and the warning is for, what, for ships in the area? Yeah, so I believe they give it to the Japanese Coast Guard so that, yeah, ships in, the, in these certain coordinates can be aware of a potential fall down, I suppose. Mm. And it's the same coordinates that we saw for the last two satellite launch attempts as well so we'll see how do they give that the message to the japanese coast guard are they got them on whatsapp or are they, <laughs> are they sure. tweeting at them i, I mean that's know. that's that actually could be the question yeah of the, uh, how of the did week they get that, there yeah. yeah i'd like to be in that office when those notices come in right okay all hands on deck we've got <laughs> yeah. something from north korea yeah. yeah gosh okay well so that's uh, a bit of tension a bit of uh, yes yeah a pregnant pause so to speak and we'll and see third whether time's it happens. a charm maybe this could be the successful it launch. could be the one right yeah. which which, of course, it won't be the end because nobody wants just one reconnaissance satellite uh, up in space because they rotate, you know, they're, they're in an orbit around the Earth. So you need to have more of them. You need, right. I- ideally, North Korea will want to have a whole network of these satellites so that they're always able to have eyes on the peninsula. Yes. Uh, and you won't have a minute when the satellites, you know, beyond view on the other side of the Earth. So yeah. it'll be the beginning of something else. Yeah. And this is also, I think, going to be, well, potentially a busy month for satellite launches because South Korea is planning on launching its own oh. um, at the end of the month, I believe. I think it's November 30th. Right. They plan to put their own wow. spy satellite up. So uh-huh. maybe North Korea is trying to beat South to the punch. Perhaps. And, and this is also this is the week, as I was reminded by uh, BBC News this morning, uh, that President Yoon Sung Yeol of South Korea is on his state visit to England, to London. Yes, he's uh, meeting he the king. Meeting the king. He'll be giving a speech in Buckingham Palace. He'll be going to Westminster Abbey and also speaking to the parliament. Um, so an interesting time for North Korea to do this while he's overseas on a state visit. You know, yeah. that might also be uh, part of the um, planning as well, I'm not Absolutely, sure. Absolutely, yeah. Okay, so uh, that that's the rocket or the satellite. What else have you got for me? Okay, well, uh, I guess quickly. You can, do, you can <laughs> tell me about the sports thing. Although, pardon me if my eyes glaze over. Go on. <laughs> the enthusiasm, Jack. <laughs> well, they're two kind of interesting sports stories. Um, so North Korea returned, the, the men's soccer team returned to playing last week after not, not having been seen since 2019, I mm. believe. Well, um, the whole team. Yeah, oh. yeah. So they were playing in a World Cup qualifier against Syria where they actually lost... Um, but what was interesting... Sierra Leone. <laughs> Syria. Syria. Oh, sorry, Syria. Syria yeah. Okay, gosh, right. <laughs> ah, two of those, um, those countries that are you know, often referred to as rogue states. So did they play rogues football? Rogues versus rogues, yeah. Right. Um, so what was interesting about this match was we saw the return of this young player, he's 25 years old, Han Kwang Song. And he'd recently, well, he'd been in the spotlight a few years ago because he had signed with Juventus and then he signed with a huh. uh, team in Qatar, wow. was making a lot of money. $4.6 million, I believe, was his contract. Wow. Um, but then he got hit by these UN sanctions. So he was actually deemed to be an overseas worker and under UN sanctions, you know, couldn't be seen to be earning right. money that could potentially go back to the regime. Right. So his contract had to be ended. And then he was deported to Italy, interestingly enough. From Qatar? From it- Qatar, yeah. Apparently he was in the, the embassy in Rome and then hadn't been heard or seen for the last three years. 
Oh, he, um, was he stuck there during COVID? Yeah, yeah. So Doing but a bit of office work at the embassy. <laughs> Potentially, yeah. You know? There was th- thoughts that maybe he could be seen again at the Asian Games last month. Right, but uh, wasn't. But he didn't show up oh. there, no. So at least he's alive. Where was this game played against Syria? It was played in Saudi Arabia. Ah. Yeah, it was supposed to be played in Syria, but obviously a bit of a civil war going on right. there, so couldn't Gosh. happen. But yeah, he, he was playing, got substituted, but, you know, back on the team. So that was interesting to see him again. And potentially we can learn, well, hope to learn where he's been for the last three years. Mm. If a journalist asks him a question. Yeah, right. if he answers, yeah. yeah that, that, uh, <laughs> does North Korea have a curling team? I don't know, See, actually. that's something, that's a, a sport that I, for some reason, I can watch curling and get really interested in that. I um, went to see the curling at the Winter Olympics in Pyeongchang. I went to see ice hockey and curling. I chose two very... Ah. Different end of the spectrum sports, one very fast paced and one not so fast paced. Right. Yeah, both very interesting. Well, I, I remember the Pyeongchang curling, the women's curling was very exciting, right? Mm-hmm. All of Korea got excited, South Korea got excited. Yes, I that. saw the men's one, unfortunately. Oh, dear. Okay. <laughs> now, do you think they have a hurling team in North Korea? I actually, no, I know they don't have a hurling team, okay. but I follow a, um, there's a very big hurling team in Uganda that I'm very interested wow. in following on Twitter. Yeah, so the spread of the Irish continues. How did that happen? I don't know, but I, there's GAA clubs everywhere, Jack. Right, GAA is is the uh, like the Irish Athletic Association. Oh, yes, okay. yeah. Hmm. So we have football and hurling clubs all over the world. Yeah, there could be one in North Korea. Maybe we don't know. We don't know. We know there's no soccer, uh, no uh, cricket team. <laughs> no cricket team. Right, right. <laughs> but who cares about cricket? Well, yeah, you've, <laughs> you've got me on that one. Um, okay, anything else on uh, on sports? So I suppose the other thing, just speaking of the Asian Games, the Olympic. Asia's Olympic body was hit with a big fine this this week, $500,000, because they allow North Korea to use its flag at the Asian Games that have just passed. So the World Anti-Doping Agency had ruled that North Korea was not allowed to fly its own flag at these kinds of competitions. Oh, its own flag? Yes. So like like Russia, it has to be just a free athlete? Exactly. From North Korea. Yes, yeah. And oh. um, because of COVID, the, the WADA, it's called the World Anti-Doping Agency, wasn't mm. able to do any of its procedures to you know test athletes and things. Yeah. So North Korea was deemed then non-compliant and wasn't supposed to fly its own flag. Apparently, Asia's Olympic body flew it anyway. And yeah, they're going to be hit with a big fine now. So that was my but other sporting 000, story. I mean, in, in terms of sports, that's probably not much, is it? I'm not sure. I wouldn't like a five hundred thousand dollars. Well, no, line. but as an individual, <laughs> but you know these sporting agencies, yes. there's a lot of money that goes yeah, to them. They have these true. big sponsorships and and yeah. and whatnot. Yeah. I think what was interesting about this story, though, is if North Korea doesn't comply, it looks like it's unlikely to compete if it won't if it can't fly its own flag. Yeah. Um, so no, I can r- imagine that Russian would be athletes, in. you know, competed anyways. Right. But North Korea seems unlikely at the Asian Para Games, which followed the Asian Games. Yeah. They weren't allowed to fly their own flag, and so did not compete. Ah. Um, so you know, we saw this return to sports for North Korea, but right. if they're not allowed to fly their own flag, it's unlikely that they will continue to compete. So I imagine that North Korea would see that as an issue of national sovereignty. Exactly. And they would say that uh, we will simply won't yes. won't submit. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So could and be the they'll, they'll blame they'll blame American imperialism for that too. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. Yeah. Very predictable. But it's because their athletes aren't being tested for the yes. doping. Is that right? Yeah. So okay. they weren't able to be tested for the last three years. Um. So they apparently now they are going to let these doping agency back in to do testing again. But it hasn't been clear if that's Wait, happened. Wait. So, so Wada goes to North Korea for yes, the testing. That's correct. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. And so at the Asian Games that have just passed again, um. North Korea said, yeah, we'll let them back in. But I don't know, has, has that happened or when that will happen and how quickly it takes to make a country compliant? 
I don't know how long you know steroids could be in someone's system. Right, because so. you can't just test today. You've got to be testing right for what a year or I guess whatever. So. Yeah, uh, to know that you've nowhere along the t- on yes. the way have you had any uh, any doping. Uh, yeah, or how long it stays in someone's system. Yeah. you know they could stop taking it this week and maybe test negative next week. I don't know. So right, it'll be interesting one to follow. I think. Okay, all right. So follow up on that one. Um, any uh, last thoughts for us today? No, just have to get back to my desk now and keep watching out for this satellite. Could be any time, I suppose. But uh, yeah, it's going to be an interesting week for sure. After your big debut on the round table last yes. week, this is your second time in two weeks to be on the podcast. I know, and my third time. So also third time of charm, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, thank you very much for coming on the show today, Alana, and we'll have you uh, back on again very soon. Thank you so much, Jacko. And stick around for this because after the break, I have my interview with Sumi Terry talking about her film that she has produced called Beyond Utopia. MK News has launched a new app that makes staying updated on all things North Korea easier than ever. The app gives access to the latest articles so you'll never miss a breaking story. It's fast, convenient and designed with readers in mind. Our team is dedicated to bringing you the most accurate and insightful information about North Korea with content and analysis unavailable elsewhere. Don't delay. Download the NK News app from Apple's App Store or Google Play and stay connected with the latest North Korea news and analysis. The app also works with NK Pro subscriptions, offering full access to NK Pro content. Welcome, listeners, to the uh, podcast for the long interview. And with me in the studio today is Sumi Terry, producer of a new film, Beyond Utopia. Sumi used to be a CIA analyst and also a fellow at CSIS and most recently at the Wilson Center. But she's now a senior advisor at Macro Advisory Partners. Welcome back on the show, Sumi. You were last on episode 13, 300 episodes ago. Interviewed by Chad O'Carroll in April uh, 2018, so yeah, more than five years ago. And this is the first time that I've actually interviewed you in person. So great to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. Time flies when you're having fun. It's been five years, huh? Yeah, five years and a pandemic. That's right. Uh, Now, you describe yourself on your Twitter or X page, which I can tell the listeners, we're going to include the link in the show notes, but it is Sumi Terry, one word. You describe yourself as ex-government drone career expert, amongst other things. Why did you leave government service? Well, I mean, I spent a number of years, right, 10 years at the CIA, National Intelligence Council, National Security Council, under President Bush and President Obama. You know, at some point, you have to, dis- you have to decide, am I a lifer at CIA? Because uh, these assignments at the National Intelligence Council and National Security Council were detailed assignments, detailed assignments, okay. where I was on a loan. So I had to make a decision whether I was going to be a lifetime employee of CIA. At that time, it was right for me to leave. Does it get boring? What, the agency life? No, uh, or, being, being a, a, a government analyst, intelligence person. No, it was not boring. I think CIA, when you're a CIA, you get to do different things, mm. right? I was actually a CFR, Council on Foreign Relations, as a visiting intel fellow. I got to have a policy rotation at the NSC. It's not boring, but, you know, it's, it wasn't a lifetime mm-hmm. thing for me. Do you miss the, the access to non-open source classified intel on North Korea? I absolutely do. You know, you become, not that you know so much, but what you can count on is this is all available information. So I'll come in in the morning, read through my traffic, 
And whether you know or you don't know, but you still say, okay, this is everything that's available when it comes to North Korea. Diplomatic cables, signals intelligence, you know, human defense intelligence agency reporting, whatever, right? You, you go through these open source information and go, okay, now I'm reading everything there is to know. So I do miss that. Yeah, and now, of course, you're just like one of us. You're a civilian, so you only, only have open source intelligence available to you. Do you feel that we can know enough about North Korea? I mean, obviously, there's a gap, but is it enough? Is it sufficient? I don't know if it's sufficient. It depends on what you want to know. Do you want to have, know about leadership intention? Do we know what Kim Jong-un is thinking? I think that's very hard to do. But I mean, you guys do a great job. I rely on your news. I come to your website to get daily info on what's the latest. So some things I think we do have access, but some things like leadership intention, is some, it's very hard to sort that out. That's a good time for me to insert a free advertisement here. For our listeners, if you haven't yet, go to nknews.org and subscribe, please. Now, Sumi, what is it that keeps you interested in North Korea even after leaving the intel uh, community and the analytical world? Well, we, don't, we haven't figured it out, right? We don't have a policy solution. We, it's not like, ooh, we figured out what to do about North Korea and we're all set. It's a, just perennial, uh, not only an enigma, but it's a challenge. Uh, it's a policy challenge. It's, we're nowhere with North Korea. We have not achieved the so-called denuclearization. Their WMD program is expanding. Human rights situation is not better. So I think I'm, you know, I remain interested just because we have not made any kind of progress and I can put a bow on it and say, okay, I've done that. There's a nice, neat solution and I can step away. Now, you've uh, recently produced a documentary film, Beyond Utopia, which is out uh, this month. How did you get involved with producing a documentary? That's quite a different role. It's a very different role. Six years ago, one of my mom friends, I call, because our kids went to the same elementary school, I knew that she had a film production company and she knew me as somebody who does North Korea. One day she read this book called The Girl with Seven Names. Mm, about Hyun So Lee. Right. So then she called me and said, Sue, I just read this book. It's incredible. Do you know what's going on in North Korea? Of course I do. Yeah. I mean, like, so she, she said, well, how come I'm, I'm so-called one of these elites, meaning, you know, pretty educated person living in New York City, affluent. Why do I not know enough about this? Why is this still a shock to me or a surprise to me? And I said, you know, it's, it's not even your fault, really, because media is so overwhelmingly focused on North Korea's WMD program and just nukes and missile tests. It's never, you know, they don't highlight what's going on with North Korean people. So she said, well, I think it's time to tell a story. Let's make a film. So it started out trying to make the film about that book because mm -hmm. obviously it evolved and we ended up not quite doing that. Right. But Although Hyunso is featured as an interviewee in the, in the yeah, film. Absolutely. Yeah. And so as producer, what was your role? What did you have to do? Did you have to, to find the people to be interviewed? Oh, yes. So it's like producer. I mean, I thought I had no experience as a producer, but I actually produced my own family mm. production. So I guess I do have some experience. Yeah. It's really from beginning to end, everything. It's about you get involved with the substance. You, you know, we, I was on board before we even hired the director, director Madeline Gavin. So it's about every aspect of it, whether it's fundraising to content, to verifying the facts, to personnel, it's literally everything to this. So I, I learned tremendous amount as a film producer now 
what it takes to produce something like this. Mm. When you're when you just watch film in the you know I would watch a movie or a film in the past and go wow that's a great film and don't think much about that. But now I have an appreciation of what goes in right. and even post production. Like I have to promote it. You have to market. You know you have to you you have to. Yeah, this is what I'm doing right now. Right? I'm promoting the film, yeah, right? Yeah. So now this film debuted at the Sundance Film Festival and won an award there. Tell us about that. That was incredible. Because this is my first time, I thought it was very normal to produce a film and then you just go to Sundance. That's absolutely not true. Mm-hmm. Um, just to be even selected to be a premiere at Sundance is a pretty big deal. And at that film festival, we brought the entire Roe family that are featuring the film from the 80-year-old grandma Roe to the little girls. Right. We had Soyeon Lee, who's also featuring the film, and Pastor Kim. We brought everybody to Sundance, wow. and they watched the film in that theater for the first, first time. time. Wow. Imagine the, gram- the gr- grandmother, right? Yep. She's 80-something years old. She never went to a movie theater in her life. The first time she's watching a movie is a Sundance mm-hmm. in Utah yeah. about herself. About us, yeah. So it's very moving, extremely, uh, you know, I, and, and Soyeon, the one who plays, not plays, but Soyeon, the mother, mm-hmm who's featured in that film, she was sitting behind me. Mm-hmm. And of course, it was very traumatic in a way for her to sure. watch herself because her story is kind of a tragedy. Yeah. So We'll get into that in a bit. Yeah, Over the years, there have been a number of documentary films made about North Korea, some of them focusing on the security aspect, some of them focusing on life in the country, and also some about defection. Now, I, I've seen some, you know, I've been watching, like you, I've been watching North Korea for more than two decades. So I've seen a few defection-focused or escape-focused documentaries. What story were you trying to tell when you began making this film, and, and how is it different from that which has come before? What, what it evolved to was we really document what happens to North Korea, this particular, particularly this one family that's fleeing North Korea, but real time, right? So I don't think there's that many documentaries. So I, I have not seen a documentary that, that actually in real time captures that, right? So we, we start the film with this rural family you know, sending in uh, footage from China mm-hmm. as they you know, arrived in China, saying, please help us from that moment to documenting what happens to them, right? Through their journey through China and then to Vietnam, Laos, Thailand. And so I think that's what's very different. And for me, even as a North Korea expert, I heard about what happens in China when they get, when, when defectors are running around China or trying to flee China and come to South Korea. I know about it in theory mm-hmm. because we debrief the defectors and they tell us what happened, but it's a whole nother experience to see it as it unfolds. Yeah. So I think that's what makes this, this particular film special. Yeah, and it, it certainly is a, uh, a very special film. Let's talk about it a bit in detail. One of the prominent figures in the film there is a Pastor Kim of the Caleb Mission Church here in South Korea. He has a, a remarkable story of how he met his wife that I won't give away, that people can find out by watching the documentary. But before watching the film, I'd never seen him interviewed, but I, I was familiar with his YouTube channel, Caleb Ministry, which shows a lot of footage taken inside North Korea, secret footage taken inside North Korea, which is very interesting, open source, raw intelligence. People can find that at uh, the YouTube channel, Caleb Ministry, one word. Have you seen some of those uh, footage videos before you made the documentary? And, and is there th- things that you can learn or that we can learn about recent conditions in North Korea from watching footage like that? Yes, although like director Gavin, I've encountered those footages but didn't really think about, I didn't know, you know where they were coming from yeah. exactly. And so our director too, 
when she was doing very deep research with this film after she got on board, or as she was trying to decide whether she should direct this film, and she found all these footages. Later, we learned it was actually Pastor Kim's footages. So, yeah, I've seen it pass here and there. He does have a lot of footages. Mm. But I think our director also did an incredible job to know what footages to use yeah. to tell backstory of this um, North Korean family that's fleeing North Korea. Right. Now, the, the film, as you say, focuses on, on two separate families, two separate cases. One is Soyeon, the, the mother of a 17-year-old boy who is trying to leave North Korea to join his mother in South Korea. He's caught in China and sent back, and, and things go pretty wrong. But there's also a question about whether he really had intended to leave North Korea at all that's raised in the documentary. Tell us a little bit more about that story. Well, I think ultimately we don't know what happened and whether he's saying that... Well, we don't exactly know right. um, because we, you know, it's so hard to get information. We, can, we just know what the brokers are telling us, right? right? Uh, or towards Soyeon, mm. the broker. And she engaged with, she's engaged with, even now, with number of brokers to find out what happened to her son. So I think that's, one of, that's just one of those unknowable things, exactly what her son was thinking when he was, whether he was really defecting or he just wanted to reunite with his mother. We don't really know. We just have to go by what the brokers are telling us. Right. Yeah, we, we see a lot of conversations that she has on the phone with brokers, and, and she's constantly sending money and talking to different brokers. It, it must be a, a very costly process, both emotionally and economically. Of course, and it's quite sad because, as she herself says in the film, she doesn't even know how much to trust, Yeah. right? But this is her son, and what mother will just not do everything you can, right? Yeah. So she, she says, I don't have a choice but just to have to trust. And if they are asking me to send more money, I have to send more money because I do want to know what happens to my son. Yeah, and she also says at one point in the film, we were born in the wrong country. And that pretty much sums it up, doesn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. Now, the second story that's focused on in the documentary is a, a family of five people, three generations who escape and want to join two siblings of one woman who's already living in South Korea. And as you've already pointed out, the camera follows them in real time as they make the journey. It's uh, nail-biting, uh, cliff-hanging stuff, isn't it? Yes, and this is what I mean by I've always heard about these stories after the defectors arrive in South Korea. This is as it was happening. It was also a nail-biting experience as filmmakers mm. because we had no idea, if first, for example, what's going to happen to this family. Right. They could get captured at any point while we were filming this. And then, of course, then, you know, there would be also no film. Yeah. Um, so this was just, even for us, as we were making this, it was, it was just kind of nerve-wracking experience. So they, uh, they move, obviously, through China, and then they go through Southeast Asia to get to Safe Haven, sort of a halfway stop in, in Thailand before coming to South Korea. And about one hour into the film, the, uh, the husband of the woman... Uh, escaping from North Korea talks. Uh, they're in a safe house in Vietnam, hiding, waiting to make the crossing over into Laos. And he's talking about the difficulties of getting water from a communal well in North Korea, especially on days when the North Korean government might call everybody on a, in a particular area to come out to a political rally. He said that you didn't even have time to, to get the water because there was no pump. You had to pull it out by hand. And it, it, it's hard to believe sitting in South Korea that people so geographically close to us here still have to draw water by hand from the earth with no pump. Uh, and, and, you know, obviously when it's winter, it's hard. And when you've got to go out to a, a rally, it's hard. And then he actually sits there. He's telling the story in rural Vietnam, which I'm sure has its own development difficulty. But anyway, he's in rural Vietnam. And he describes that as a heaven on earth, a place that North Koreans cannot even imagine. 
So I think that's really telling about the conditions that they were fleeing from. And they have not even reached South Korea yet. And so their reaction to everything they are seeing for the first time it's such an authentic reaction that says a lot about North Korea. Mm-hmm. And look, yeah, I think grandmother at some point says, wow, look, like she's just blown. Like yeah. her mind is blown just watching everything. And then she says, oh, our dear leader, Kim Jong-un, he's so brilliant and so young, but then it must be our fault. Like how come we live poorly, right? right? Like she can't possibly comprehend what she's seeing. Yeah. How come this country is so better off when we have such a brilliant leader at home? So I think just watching their reaction was just so telling about the state of North Korea right now. Can you say a few words about the process of, of leaving North Korea, crossing over into China? Why is this difficult? Well, it's difficult because you have to obviously, it's illegal. There are border guards and you have to cross the river, whether it's a frozen river. And, you know, there's always, you can get caught and look what's going to happen to you when you get caught. But I, I think this film makes it also abundantly clear their danger does not stop mm. after they flee from North Korea. So that's step number one. Right. You have to get out of North Korea, which is fraught with danger, and they could get captured at any point. But after you arrive in China, the danger continues. And it's, it's even worse in a way because you have a long journey yep. that to make it out of China. So right. I think that really just shows you, you know, how difficult and arduous this journey really is for, for these people. Yeah, to come, you know, what is... Uh as the crow flies, a very short distance from North Korea to South Korea, but they have to really go around it the long way. I should point out that all the footage in the film was filmed before the pandemic, so at that time it was still possible for people to come out of North Korea and move through China. That became basically impossible after January 2020, didn't it? Yes, and it became impossible during the entire pandemic period. Yeah. And now it's also very difficult because all the underground railroad network Mm -hmm. um, has been destroyed. Mm -hmm. So it's also much more costly now to rescue a North Korean. Right, right. And I think also the um, pointed out in the film a little bit, but we've covered it a bit here at NK News as well, that the technology and just the security on both sides of the border, on the North Korean side and on the Chinese side, has become a lot stricter in the last few years, hasn't it? They're using facial technology and automated CCTV cameras with motion trackers and things so they can really get people almost as soon as they enter into China. That's absolutely right. I think with that technology improvement or that surveillance just becoming much more invasive, it's, it has become much more challenging. And, and then combined with that, with, with the underground network has been destroyed through the COVID-19 pandemic, it just becomes so much more challenging and so much more costly for North Koreans. And then, the, the, yeah, the, the next step, stage two, is the process of hiding and surviving in China and then finding a way, someone who can help you move through China. It's mentioned in the, uh, the film by Pastor Kim that often women get sold into a sort of sexual bondage and, and men end up working as, as day laborers. But a family of five where you've got young children and a woman over 80, that's, it, it, it's the, fam- the, the Roe family of, of five, they're not a, a good commercial uh, uh, investment for any of the brokers, are they? They're not going to sell them on to anybody else because either they're too old or they're too young and you've got a married couple in between. That's exactly right. I mean, it's usually, I think, young women, it's easier for, I mean, there, there's a, some value, right? Because yeah. can, they can be sold to as brides or pornography workers or mm-hmm. prostitution and so on. It's just very hard. This is why it's actually remarkable that w- this family was able to be saved because it's also hard for a family of five to move yeah. around China. It's easier to hide if you're one person. 
So as Pastor Kim says, like he said, oof, this is a little challenging mm. to, to move five people at the same time. Pastor Kim also says that the brokers don't see refugees as humans, but rather as money. And he said that, that that's true all the way through the chain from, from Northeast China to Southeast Asia. So I do think that, I mean, we have people like Pastor Kim, a lot of people who are genuinely trying to help these North Koreans out of, you know, either by f- because of faith or just they know it's the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. But it is true that there are many brokers that are, you know, for them, it's about, this is business, this yeah. is economics, it's about making money. Now then there's the, uh, the stage three is make the process of making it to a third country. And this is often Thailand, and it seems hard to believe that for about 20 years, two full decades, this has been the only reliable passage to get refugees out from North Korea to South Korea is through Thailand. Yes, and so you see this very dramatic footage of them trying to make it to Thailand, and Pastor Kim says, the moment you step onto Thailand, now you've reached freedom. Right. Now, is is there a danger in revealing in the film too much about the route through China and Southeast Asia to get to Thailand? Is is there a a concern that some countries, you know, Laos or or Vietnam may uh, catch on and crack down? So I think this is sort of well-established, and we talked very extensively with Pastor Kim about this. But he felt pretty safe because, it's, as you can see, it's very gritty footages. You know, they do know there's a jungle and people do this, but exactly where and how and what safe house. And once a safe house is used, you don't really use it again. Now it's been destroyed. So we talked a lot about this and we were concerned about this. And we really took a lead from Pastor Kim and allowed Pastor Kim to make all the decisions in what to show and what not to show. There's a, uh, a section in the film where they're going through the, the jungle-filled mountains of Laos where some of them suspect, and it may even be Pastor Kim, suspects that the brokers are leading them around in circles and they're, they're being asked for more money. How does he look back on that now, now that they got out? Was that actually what was going on? Were they being led in circles and in, to extort them for more money? They believe so because it was not supposed to take that many hours. Right. I mean, so and it then, started from three and it ended up taking more than six hours, right? Right. And then they could also, they see that they just walked the same mountain. I mean, they, they see that this is the same exact place because they keep going around in circles. So, and I think, unfortunately, that is also the reality uh, with brokers also seeing a situation and seeing there is an opportunity to make more money or extort more money. So he still thinks that's exactly what happened. Uh, then the, the last process, of course, once you get to South Korea, there's the process of uh, of adapting and settling here. And and resettlement in South Korea is hard, isn't it? It's, uh, what makes it so difficult? Well, first of all, you have, you know, decades of just ideological indoctrination. So just realizing that everything that you knew about what, that, what you believed in, that you were lied to. So there is that sort of collapse of, you know, ideology, collapse of the myth, collapse of everything that you believed in. So, and you just imagine, you know, as grandmother says here, she says, I came here as 80 something years old. I mean, you have a whole life that you live somewhere else, you know, very close of society. So I, I do think that for defectors, of course, there are some that just better and they can live successful lives mm-hmm. in South Korea. But for many defectors, it's also hard. This, And I think when I think about potential unification in the future, mm. I think this is going to be the long-term challenge in terms of just taking care of the North Korean people. This, it's going to be a social, like just integration challenge. Oh, yeah. Now, in the, uh, the last couple of years, we've seen some well-known cases in the South Korean media of, of North Korean defector women in South Korea who have died either... Uh, in one case of starvation, in some other cases by their own hand, tragically. Um, is it more difficult for women to, to, to resettle? Do you know anything about that? 
I don't know if it's more difficult for women because, first of all, most defectors are women, mm-hmm. actually. I might actually think it might be difficult for men uh-huh. because for women, at least when they come to South Korea, they can also get married to South Korean. Mm. Although I think the reverse is not as much the case. Um, so I, I, I'm not sure if it's more difficult for women because majority of defectors are women. women yeah. There's a group mentioned earlier in the film, the uh, New Korea Women's Association of North Korea Refugees. Do you know anything about that and, and what they do? Do they sort of try and help North Korean women get through this resettlement process? Yes, and I think Soyeon herself is mm. leading this well, effort. She's the leader. Ah. Yeah, she's leading this effort where you are trying to help women, like how to just... What does it mean to live in South Korea with any kind of things that the defectors have learned, trying to help fellow um, North Korean defectors? Now, another thing that uh, I thought of while watching the film is just that in South Korea, there doesn't seem to be much interest these days in either in North Korea or in North Korean refugees and their difficulties. I, according to one American academic who I interviewed a few days ago, the high watermark of interest in North Korean human rights issues, not just here in South Korea, but pretty much globally, seems to have been 10 years ago when the, uh, the UN's Commission of Inquiry report came out. And do you agree that interest in activism seems to have peaked around 2013 and there's been a slight but noticeable tailing off since then? Well, I know there are certain defectors, there are high-profile defectors that are trying to, you know, they have raised awareness because they wrote books or are selling books and they give TED Talks and so on. But besides that, I do think that it's hard to maintain that level of attention. Mm. And because it's been 10 years, as you noted, this 2014 Commission of Inquiry, I don't think there's a lot of attention being paid to this issue. And, you know, unfortunately, uh, you know, all the time we talk about North Korea, it's about the missile test, it's yeah. the nuclear program, and so on. Um, so I'm hoping that at least with this film being out, there again, we'll re- try to, like, this become a topic of conversation, point of conversation, that we can talk more about North Korean human rights issues. One of the reasons that the academic gave for the peaking of interest in 2013, he said, is that once the COI's report had been released, pretty much all that could be done for North Korean human rights from the outside world had been done. I mean, that, that they put together the information, they released the report, here it is, and it makes me wonder what more could be done from the outside, from outside North Korea to improve the lives of North Korean people. Well, I do think that we got to keep up the drumbeat on trying to raise awareness of this issue. And, you know, okay, this report did come out, but the policy has not changed. Look at the Chinese government's policy right now. And, you know, as you guys also pointed out, North, uh, the Chinese just sent back mm-hmm. some five to 600 North Korean defectors were de- that were detained in China. So I think we need to continually talk about this issue to continue to pressure not just the United States, also to integrate human rights issues into a larger North Korea policy, but to the Chinese government too. And they'll feel the pressure if the coalition of partners and international community keeps talking about and raising this issue. China's policy is really inhumane. They sent back five to 600 North Koreans back to North Korea knowing exactly what fate awaits them. But how do we change China's mind? We might not be able to in one term, but, you know, this is what I mean by sustained Mm. pressure campaign. Maybe we won't, but we got to at least raise awareness so people keep talking about it. I think that's um, that's step number one. Now, um, you mentioned, uh, well, obviously from the name, it's obvious that Pastor Kim is a religious man. He's uh, he's motivated at least partly by his faith to do what he does. There are other groups to do that as well. And, And at one stage in the film, we see him pray before a meal and instructing the North Korean refugees to uh, listen quietly to the end and then say amen. And 
this brings me to one criticism that's leveled at religious groups that help North Korean refugees, that there's a, an implied obligation to either convert to Christianity or at least observe some of the rituals or uh, participate in the services and Bible studies, uh, either in China or when they come to South Korea. Do you have any issues with that? You know, I, I don't, because these are, like, people like Pastor Kim is the one who's risking his life and putting it all out there so that he can help rescue North Koreans. I think once they come to South Korea, then they're free to decide on, what, you know, practice religion, don't practice religion. But I don't fault people that's like faith-based communities or organizations or people like Pastor Kim for doing that. This is his faith. That's, but look what he's doing. He's saving lives, literally. You know, so I understand the criticism, but when you look at the relatively, you know, just like what he's doing and the impact, mm -hmm. I, I don't really have a problem with that. One of the other interesting things about the film is how it shows the complex emotions about, you know, leaving North Korea. For example, when they're in Laos traveling in a van, the, the Roe family starts singing a song about their hometown and some of them are crying and thinking about what they've left behind. Uh, and then later the grandmother is interviewed and, and she says that she hadn't actually planned to leave North Korea, but she did so because she knew that life as an old person would be hard without her adult daughter. Uh, and then the granddaughter says in her own interview that Kim Jong-il is the greatest person in the whole world. So it's really good to see that complexity in the, in the documentary because often that gets lost over, glossed over in favor of a, of a simpler narrative. Yes, and I think that's what's really incredible about this film is that because we were interviewing them as, you know, as mm. soon as they left North Korea, they have not even made it to South Korea yet. They have not gone to Hanawon yet. Mm -hmm. They did not have time to adjust and reflect. So every answer they give is so authentic and so real. So we don't have to talk about North Korea's ideological indoctrination campaign. You just have to see grandmother's answer when we ask, what do you think about Kim Jong-un, or the daughter's answer, the little girl, saying yeah. he's the greatest person in the world. That says everything about the whole ideological indoctrination campaign that's going on in North Korea, right? So yeah. I do think the timing of this, where we ask this family members like grandmother and, and, and the little girls uh, what they think and the answers they give are really, it just shows you know, what they're truly thinking. It's as, as real and as authentic as it gets. Yeah, it's almost real time, isn't it? Uh, can you tell us how the family's doing now? I mean, you mentioned you went to, uh, to the Sundance Film Festival with them. They've, they've gone through Hanawon. They've settled here in South Korea. How are they doing? They're doing very well. The father is working at a tofu factory. Wow. Um, the grandmother is having a little memory issues of because of her um, age, but right. she's living with uh, not the, the Hyukchang, the, the, the man who brought the family out. Yep. And the girls are doing really well. They're playing musical instruments. They like K-pop. I mean, so everybody's doing really well. And Mama Ro, we call her Mama Ro, yeah. uh, she's right now in New York. You know, she's wow. at UN trying to talk about what happens to what happened to the North Koreans. They were detained in China because, unfortunately, Grandma Ro's daughter-in-law is one of the ones that were just re sent back to North Korea. Ah, in the recent group. Yes, okay. yes. So, and everybody just became their activists, right? And yeah. so they, they understand a bigger cause and they are trying to do what they can to shed light on what happens to North Koreans. And what about Soyeon, who, whose son was sent to the camp? That was three years ago. Has there been any news? Well, we do know that he's alive. She believes that he's alive based on what the brokers are telling her. Mm -hmm. And, you know, she's really motivated by activism. She's really trying to help. Um, I've been fortunate to spend a lot of time with her because she's been going to all the film festivals 
um, with the with the crew, with the director and uh. other producers. And so, you know, she has two goals, which is one day to be able to see her son again. And she says very poignantly, you know, listen, all I want is just to be like everybody else, like just to be able to see him and do a normal thing like mother and son would do, just to have a, a meal mm-hmm. with her son. So that she's motivated by that. And then she's also motivated by shedding light on the North Korean human rights abuses. Is North Korean human rights and their abuses just an intractable problem that will really not improve significantly until there's some fundamental structural change in North Korea? Is that what it takes? Long term, probably what's, that's what it takes because both the threat, the WMD threat and human rights violations, they all come from the regime itself. So unless there's a change in the regime, it's probably going to continue. But I do think we are still more things that we can do. As I mentioned, you know, the pressuring the Chinese policy to change, perhaps, or maybe even the third, third, you know, it could be a Vietnam. You know, they look, this family went through, they still had to be in hiding in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't think, you know, we can just give up on saying, well, this is, this is not going to change as long as the regime stays in power, so there's nothing we can do. I do think there are things that we can do, but it is a long-term difficult situation. When governments like the U.S. government, the South Korean government, when they deal, when they talk to North Korea, when they try to negotiate with North Korea, should the weapons of mass destruction issue be linked to the human rights issue, or should they be dealt with separately? What's the best way to approach that? I think we delinked it for a long time, just because, and I understand why, because just dealing with a nuclear issue is hard enough to get anywhere with North Korea. But I do think it's really hard to de- uh, just to, you know, delink it like this. It's, it's, I do think human rights have to be a larger, you know, it has to be part of our overall North Korea policy. Uh, I think we, can, we cannot just say we don't have to worry about human rights. We can ignore human rights and just focus on the nuclear weapons program. I just don't think that's possible as an overall approach to North Korea. But then there are some people who criticize the securitization of human rights by linking it to, to weapons issues, that it, it actually doesn't help. Well, just focusing on North Korea's nuclear issue did not help either. Mm-hmm. Did we get anywhere right now? We're at a complete impasse with North Korea in the WMD issue too, right? So that didn't work either. As someone who's analyzed North Korea for over 20 years with both classified and open source intel, what could and and what is likely to lead to structural change in North Korea in the long term? I really think in the long term, getting information into North Korea, trying to find ways to help North Korean people is the only long-term solution to the North Korean problem. I just don't think we can, without doing that, anything is going to really change. So this is not anything that we can do in the short term. It's a long-term approach. But I'm someone who believes in this whole information penetration campaign, trying to get information into North Korea. And the solution can only come from the North Korean people. So the North Korean people, they, they hold the agency and the, and the capacity to change things eventually when they know enough. Right. And even right now, there are changes at the societal level, right? There's, it's, the regime does not change, but there are, you know, information is getting into North Korea, the whole private market activities. There's a Changmadang generation. There, there are changes that's going on in North Korea that we're not really following. I mean, you guys are following, but you, mm-hmm. you know, what I mean? there, there are changes. It's not just a static country. There's a younger generation there. There's a different. There are people who are focused on private markets and making money and, and all of that. And I do think getting in more information into North Korea would help that. 
Do you think that there's a, a meaningful distinction between people who leave North Korea for political reasons and those who seek for a better life? I, mean, I know that China often refuses to call North Korean refugees refugees, saying they're simply economic migrants. So do you see any meaningful distinction between the two? I don't. And as you said, China calls them economic migrants. But when they are sent back to North Korea, because of the, what happens to them when they are sent back, they become refugees or place, right? So it's, I think China... Even if you buy the argument that they are economic migrants, because of what happens to them when they go back to North Korea, or they're sent back to North Korea, China can, it's, you can't just buy this Chinese argument that they are economic migrants. Given that, is it ethical to encourage people who are still inside North Korea to try to escape it, knowing the dangers that it'll put them through and their family members through? Aren't they living in a large, gigantic prison right now? I mean, they're like, so... Yeah, no, I, I think, you know, it's why North Koreans themselves are the ones who's risking their lives watching Korean soap opera, being trying to like get access to information. So I, I don't buy that argument. I think it's they're the one who's had risking their lives doing it anyway. Because, yeah, there are some groups or people who say, we'll help North Koreans who are already out, like people who are in China, like the Roe family, for example. They're already out, they've made that journey, and we'll help them from here on. But that maybe might balk at, say, helping to encourage the uh, Soyeon son from coming out because he's already there. He's not in any imminent danger, although, of course, as you point out, life there in North Korea is, uh, is not easy anyway, but uh, th- th- there's a, a difference between the two. But you think that that's a not a meaningful difference? I guess there is a difference, but I do also believe in the fact that we got to still do what we can to... Like, they, they're living in a gigantic prison. They are denied to every basic human rights in terms of they don't have information. They don't, I mean, so I don't believe that sending information in or letting them be aware of what the world is like outside is a problem. You know, as grandma says in this film, right, she says she's so upset that at 80 something years old, this is when she found out that everything that she believed in was a lie. And her son, and he also makes this point that he's angry that now he's 50 something years old, he's now finally found freedom. Uh, and Soyeon tried to get her son out because she saw what's out here, right? She saw the, she saw the real world um, that her son was denied to. So I don't, I don't buy that argument that trying to help that or trying to break that information blockade um, in North Korea is, is the issue. From a utilitarian perspective, sort of trying to help the most people in the, the most efficient way, uh, I wonder whether trying to help condi- improve conditions inside North Korea by doing, for example, humanitarian work inside North Korea, would that be more efficient than the, the large amounts of money and, and, and the, the emotional toll of helping people come out one by one or in small groups? Well, I don't know why it can't be both. I mean, you, are, you can do humanitarian aid and you can try to help. And I, I, I don't see this as an either or issue. That's true. Uh, but probably the same group can't do both. Right, that there's a limitation in that one. That if you're if you're helping refugees, then you can't also be doing. The North Korean government tends to be unfriendly towards doing humanitarian work inside North Korea. There's got to be a division of labor in that sense. Yeah, but why why can't there be a division of labor then? No, but the, yeah. No, uh, just a question I right. asked. Yeah. And uh, do you is this this film beyond utopia? Is this something that you hope would be uh, one day viewed by North Koreans inside North Korea? Do you think that would have an? Uh, what kind of effect do you think that might have? I think because it's so authentically, it shows what happens. This is not some sort of recreation. It's not uh, fiction. 
I think North Korean seeing I will see what what it would what what the future holds. Like sometimes Soyeon says, you know, maybe if I knew what was going to happen, I might not have gone out. Meaning it was, it was a difficult mm, journey, mm. but it gives you more of an accurate sense of what would happen to them, what they can expect. Like if they were to flee North Korea, it's not that easy, right? They you can get captured. This is sort of so you are sort of showing that, but then they eventually make it to South Korea and what what that life would look like. So. They at least know. They are aware. It's not kind of this vague notion of they don't know why what would happen. They're just fleeing because they're desperate to flee North Korea. But it sort of shows what could happen if they make it to South Korea. So I do think that it's going to be helpful. Would so you would you like to see it yes, smuggled in absolutely. North Koreans? And yes, Central absolutely. Korea? Now, of course, in today's what do you call it, attention economy, it's almost inevitable that ten years from now this film, brilliant though it is, will be forgotten and, and, and there may be need to make another one. Do, are you in, in line to uh, make a, a, a follow-up 10 years from now, perhaps? Well, I or don't do know. Do you have any plans in the, in the immediate future to produce more documentaries? I have not planned it yet. Um, I am just focused on promoting this film, but we never know. You know, I didn't know I was going to produce a film, so maybe there's another one. There you go. That's, that's a, a, good, a good place for us to leave it. Thank you. Once again, for coming on the podcast, Sumi Terry. For our listeners, you can find the documentary called Beyond Utopia. It's out this month. You can also find a trailer on YouTube. And uh, it's on Twitter, or now called X, and something called Instagram. Is that a new platform? I haven't really heard about that. Uh, Beyond Utopia Doc, one word. You can find it there. So uh, thank you once again for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Imagine having the most wide-ranging news, analysis, and opinion on North Korea at your fingertips. Sounds great, right? Well, it's possible with NK News. They publish a truly diverse selection of unique articles every business day and provide you with valuable newsletters and alerts. Opinion writers and journalists include regular podcast guests like Andre Lankov, Jongmin Kim, Chad O'Carroll, Colin Zwerko, Niels Weisenzer, Peter Ward, and Shreyas Reddy. And because I know you'll love the product as much as I do, here's something special for you. Use the code PODCAST to get a $100 discount on your subscription. Redeem this podcast-only special today by visiting nknews.org discount. That's nknews.org discount. So what are you waiting for? Sign up for NK News today and get ahead of the headlines on North Korea. Ladies and gentlemen, that brings us to the end of our podcast episode for today. Our thanks go to Brian Betts and Alana Hill for facilitating this episode and to our post-recording producer genius, Gabby Magnuson, who cuts out all the extraneous noises, awkward silences, bodily functions, and fixes the audio levels. Thank you and listen again next time. <laughs>